be looking this morning at Amos chapter 4. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. It is completely sufficient. And it is completely authoritative over our lives. Amos chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring, that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that, behold, the days are coming upon you, where they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead. And you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them for you so love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you indeed speak to us in your word. We ask, O oh Lord, that even now this morning, you would help us to learn. You would help us to mark. 
You would help us to understand the truth that is in your word. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there is a persona that was at least somewhat admired about a half century or more ago that I think has fallen into complete disrepute. It is the persona of the noble lawyer. I just say that and you all chuckle because, of course, lawyers are some combination of crooks, shysters, and money grubbers, ambulance chasers, drags on the economy. But it wasn't so long ago when there were different examples of men who were lawyers who sought to find justice and to make us aware of the mandate of justice. I'm thinking of people like Perry Mason, famous prosecutors whose task it was not to rack up a reputation, but to punish evildoers and to protect the innocent. You see, it used to be part of the job of the lawyer to hold people accountable for their injustice and misdeeds. I realize that our society has moved just a bit away from that. But I think this, let's call it myth now, of the noble lawyer is something that will help us to understand the relationship between God and his people. Because you see, God is in relationship with his people. And that includes everyone who claims the name of Jesus Christ. Not just people in Israel thousands of years ago. God is in covenant with his people, and that is a relationship, but it is more than that. It is a contract. It is an agreement in which the Lord and his people seek to go forward together. Promises and blessings are promised. Obedience is demanded. And Amos here is a type of Perry Mason, of prosecutor. He is holding Israel accountable for all of their violations of the covenant with God. This is, as it were, a covenant lawsuit that God is prosecuting against Israel to tell them they have gone astray, that they are destroying the relationship and destroying themselves. And God is using Amos in a fearful way to draw Israel back to themselves and repentance. And so this morning, what I would like us to see in this fearsome text are three things. Three things about our Lord. The first thing we will see is that the Lord confronts. The Lord confronts Israel. But we must also remember that the Lord confronts you and me as well. The second thing we need to remember is that the Lord is active. God is not merely some kind of watchmaker deity who winds up the world and lets it go. No, the Lord is active in history, He is active in providence, and He is active in your life and mine. The Lord confronts. The Lord is active. And then the last thing we will see is that the Lord is faithful. And there are times when that can really frighten us. But it's also the great hope that we have. The Lord who confronts, who is active, 
and who is faithful. Let's begin then by looking at the Lord who confronts. We see here at the beginning of chapter 4 the charge that the Lord brings to Israel through Amos. Now, this chapter is a continuation of what was going on in chapter 3. You all know that these big Arabic numbers that occur between chapters of the Bible were not originally a part of the Bible text. They're not inspired. We are not doing great violence to the Lord if we moved a verse up or down. We started chapter 4 a verse earlier or later. And you see, that's because we need divisions to help us find places in our Bible and to help us to memorize the Scripture. But we need to remember that there is continuity in the text. And so this chapter 4 follows along on chapter 3. All that we had seen in the Lord bringing his case against Israel. We notice this because there is a repetition at the beginning of chapter 4. Hear this word, Amos says, just as he said in chapter 3. Now, if before the Lord had brought to Israel's mind specific instances and acts of disobedience, now he is doing something through Amos that every preacher loves to do. And that is to paint a picture, a story, to make it real, something that you can grasp onto. It's the reason that preachers use illustrations, and we don't just do philosophical dissertations. And so now Amos is about to draw a picture. This is like a prosecutor's opening statement, if you, mu- if you will. And he begins in a very colorful fashion. He says, hear this word, you cows. You cows of Bashan. You cows up on the mountain of Samaria. Now you can imagine this was not going to get Amos invited to cocktail parties. This is directed at the ladies of Israel. Now, I'm going to take a wild guess and say that none of the ladies in here would like to be called a cow. Even if, as I think is the case, this is not primarily about weight. This is about a lifestyle. This is about a mindset. So Amos is being very harsh and he's getting their attention immediately. You see, he is directing himself at women purposefully. Because you see, this is a picture of society in general. Women are trendsetters in society. Isn't this true? It's women who drive fashion. It's women who drive men's fashion, right? How many men here who are wearing a tie for the first time or a shirt for the first time don't leave the house unless they look maybe for a second in the mirror, but more importantly at their wife and say, does this go okay? And if your wife says, she doesn't even have to say no. She gives you that look, okay, I'll change it, right? Women drive society in this way. And, And there's nothing intrinsically wrong about this because the heart of women for compassion is what has driven many, many charitable societies in our nation. Women are at the forefront of compassion, of adoption programs, of food programs, of desiring to see education go forward, tutoring programs, and they get men involved. Men may take leadership, they may be called to take leadership, but it is women who take initiative very often. And here in Israel, we have the women taking an initiative of a very bad kind. 
You see, they are the heartbeat of the Israelite society. And the heartbeat of the Israelite society is not a human heart. It's a cow heart. Now, you know what cows do, don't you? They stand about in the best of pastures, and they just eat. And they look around. They may groom themselves. For a cow, it's all about the here and the now, the sensual, the physical. And what Amos is saying here is not, you're a bunch of fat ladies. What he's saying is, all you care about is what you look like and how you dress. And things that are completely physical and unspiritual. Your society is marked by an indulgence that the world has never known. You are supposed to be my witnesses to the world. You are supposed to be a testimony to the world. And instead, you're worried about the latest fashion trends. There's no concern for others at all. You are living in your rich lands, in your big houses. You cows of Bashan, the most fertile valley in all of Israel. You are just content to be rich and sit and eat. This is what Israel is like. But Amos presses it home with some specific charges. He uses three participles, three descriptions that describe not just an action, but a state, an ongoing state. He says, first, you oppress the poor. Second, you crush the needy. And third, you say to your husbands. This is an abiding picture of life in Israel. They are oppressing the poor. And the poor here are not just those who don't have money. It is those who have low rank in society, those who are unwilling to protect themselves, unable to protect themselves. And what marks these women is that they desire to see the poor oppressed so that they can get what they want. Picture in your mind, if you would, someone, a lady, telling her husband to go and to go and grab something from a poor man so that she can get a new kerchief or a 50th pair of shoes. That's what's going on here. They're oppressing the poor, but they're also crushing the needy. They are going after those who are uninfluential in society. And you see, this is not just the women. This is the women and the men. This is the entire society going after those who cannot protect themselves. But they also speak to their husbands. Now, this is not exactly a proper translation, but I think it will get the idea to you. If we translated this instead, you who nag your husbands, bring that we may drink. You see, this is not just a request. This is a command that is constant. Now, some of us experience this most frequently from our children, right? You know what this is like. When are we going to? Come on, mom, can we? Can I? Can I? Can I? Come on, can I? Can I? Can I? And what is the great temptation? Oh, all right already. Go ahead. We're nagged into submission. That's what's happening here in Israel. They are saying to their husbands, we have to have what we want now. 
And there's a great irony here because the word for husband is actually the Hebrew word for Lord. So they're saying to their lords, come on now, get me something to drink right now. This is what Israelite society has come to. But you see, the Lord confronts this society not just by telling them who they are, but by telling them who He is. He confronts them with an oath. Look at verse 2. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you. God is telling them that He is the judge. He is the Lord God, the sovereign Lord. Some translations have it. God is telling them that He is in charge. He is judging. He is observing. And He swears to them by His holiness that the days will come of their destruction. Now, the Lord does this. We see this in His promises to us, that He swears an oath to make more sure His word, as if His word needed greater surety but to make it very plain for us. And he swears here by his holiness, by the greatest attribute that he has. We might even say it is the attribute that gives all other attributes meaning. Because God's holiness is not about how white his robes are. God's holiness is not about that he's a little bit above ivory, which is only 99.9% pure. No, God's holiness is about the fact that He is completely other from everything else in the universe. He is completely God. He is completely pure. And it is not that we are not as God. We can never be as holy as God. He is what gives holiness meaning. And it's that crowning attribute that lets us know that He is the sum of all love, the sum of all mercy, the sum of all justice, because He is different than we are. And He's telling Israel this because Israel wants to fashion Him into a God after their own liking. And He says, I've sworn by My holiness that My judgment is just and it is coming. The days are coming, says the Lord when I will bring my wrath upon you. And he, he plays then also off on all of the things that Israel finds important. You see, the Israelites, the cows of Bashan, thought that status was important. They thought that beauty was important. And they thought that their security, their strongholds were, were important. And God says to them, I'm going to take all of these things away. Your status will be lost when you are taken away, he says in verse 2. And try and be beautiful, ladies, when there's a fish hook in your lip or in your nose with a chain on it where the oppressor will lead you into slavery. There's no beauty there. Try and be secure when the holes in the walls will be so great that everybody can just walk straight forward and not have to file up in line the walls will be destroyed. You see, what God is saying is the self-pleasing efforts of Israel offend Him. And He is not mocked. God will not be mocked, but He is instead the mocker. Look at verse 4. Come to Bethel, He says. Come to Bethel and transgress. He is mocking them with worship songs like we actually saw in our call to worship this morning. Go from one inhabitant to another. 
I was glad to hear when they were saying, let us go to the house of the Lord. You see, this would be a song the pilgrims would sing, let's go to Gilgal. Let's go worship. And God says, yeah, go ahead and transgress. Go ahead and multiply out all of your transgressions. Because you see, you don't care about worship of me. You only care about yourselves. You only do everything you think you need to do to get what you want. Does that only describe ancient Israel? I don't think so. We live in a society where our entire, the fabric of our society, it seems like, is built upon the notion that we need to get what we want now, immediately. I hear experts all the time talking about the, the problem with our economy and the cure for our economy is people are saving money. Stop saving. Start spending. Buy this. Buy that. And you see, this is what marks Israel. They are concerned with ritual because they think doing ritual will get them the blessing of God. Amos tells them to go bring their sacrifices up every morning and your tithes every three days. Now, this is humorous when we realize that sacrifices were only to be given once a year and that tithes were only offered up once every three years. And so it's as if Amos is saying, go do as much as you can. Go on, give the money every third day. It's not going to do you any good. Because it's not about what comes out of your wallet. It's not about what you think you've done for God lately. It's about your heart. And you see, that bites at you and me, doesn't it? Because we like to take refuge in the objectiveness of our wallet. We support the church. We support missions. We like to take heart in the objectiveness of what we have done for God. Well, I've prayed four times this week, memorized a whole chapter of the Bible. But you see, those things apart from a heart that seeks the Lord, apart from a heart that is rested upon Jesus, are meaningless. They're less than meaningless. They are an affront to God. Because God does not want to be played. He can't be fooled, Amos says. This is what they have done. And the mistake that they have made is that they have forgotten that the Lord is active. The Lord has confronted them and they have forgotten that the Lord is active. He's active first in his fearful actions. We see this here in verse 6. There is a list of woes that are read out to Israel. There is famine in verse 6. There is drought in verse 7. There is the destruction of crops in verse 9. There is disease in verse 10. There is great war in verse 10. There is disaster in verse 11. You see, these are the very real troubles of life. And God is doing something here that if we think about it long and hard, is very frightening. Because you see, God is at work in these troubles of life. Look at the beginning of verse 6. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth. Now, I need to flesh this sentence out just a little bit for you because there's some, there's some uh, 
extra words, nuances left out of the translation. It's not just I gave. We might better translate it. Moreover, even now, even so, I, yes, me, I gave you cleanness of teeth. God is drawing attention to Israel here. He's saying, you know what? You've been awfully busy lately. You've been busy asking for drinks. You've been busy offering up sacrifices. You've been busy oppressing the poor. You know what? I've been busy too. I've been treasuring up wrath. I've brought famine. I've brought destruction. I've brought death. And I did all of this for a reason. I did all of this to bring about repentance. You see... Israel was busy, but God was too because God desires to see His people come back to Him. When we see bad things in life, do we see calls for repentance? Now, I don't mean as if you get sick and you think, well, I must have some sort of secret sin. I'll have to think about it and pray about it, and then God will make me well again. No, I mean that as we think and look at our lives, the struggles we have in jobs, in relationships, trouble in school, tiredness, difficulties in our community. Do we see opportunities for this to point us to repentance and point us to the Lord? Because you see, God is at work in these things. Bad things do not happen because God is asleep at the switch. I think sometimes that's our theology. But you see, it's important how we react to bad things around us. A question we might ask ourselves is, are we like the Israelites and do we rebel at the bad things that God brings to us? You see, because it's natural for us to hear things from the Lord like, I bring war, I bring death, I bring famine, and to be very offended and say, oh, this must be a late redactor of this prophecy because God would never say such mean things. He's a God of love. After all, Oprah tells me so. He would never harm anyone ever. And everyone knows bad things only happen because they're out of God's control. God wishes he could make our lives perfect, but, but he just can't. No, it's natural for us to see God like that, but you see, the fact is it's because we don't want a God that is involved in our lives all the time. We don't want a God that sees everything that we do, even the things that our family don't see. No. You see, that is our nature. But ironically, Understanding that God is sovereign and understanding that God brings bad things our way, especially bad things to drive us to repentance, is a hope in our lives. Because if you think about it, would you rather have a God that brought bad things your way to get your attention or a God who is incompetent, asleep, uninvolved, uncaring? That's not the kind of God that I want to serve. That's not the kind of God that the Bible presents to us. The God of the Bible is sovereign. He is involved. And you see, this gives us hope because that is the only way that we can throw ourselves upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Could you trust Jesus if he took vacation? 
Could you trust Jesus if he was like the God of, of the battle on Mount Carmel, like Baal, whom Elijah said, well, maybe he's taking a walk. Maybe he fell asleep. Maybe he just forgot about you. Would you want a God like this? I don't, I don't think so. What we want is a Jesus Christ that we can trust with everything that we have. Because we know he is omnipotent. Because we know he is powerful. Because we know he is in control. You see, the fact that Jesus is in control, the fact that God is sovereign allows us to say that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. I don't care if it's armies or plagues or earthquakes or pestilence. It doesn't matter because who's in charge of all of that? God. And you see, when we realize this, that God is sovereign, we understand that He has a purpose and a plan, and what God works is not for our glory, is not for our benefit, is not what we think will be helpful. He does what He does for His glory and our good. You see, the Israelites wanted a religion that would be helpful, where they could go skipping off to Gilgal, fire off a few sacrifices, and think to themselves, God is going to bless me now. Prophets will go up 8%. And never give another thought to God in anything else they did in their lives. And they would run these businesses that they think should go up 8 10 20% because God is blessing them. They would run it in the most ungodly and unbiblical fashion, oppressing the poor, crushing the needy, and they didn't understand there was a disconnect. And God is saying to them through Amos, you've got to connect the dots. Because I want you, not a sacrifice. I want you, not a tithe. You see, this is what the Lord does. He wants repentance in us, not because he fancies it. He wants repentance in us, not because he wants us to grovel. The Lord wants repentance from his people because it is the only way he can have a relationship with them. If you are not daily repenting, you are not walking with Jesus. You may say it, you may think about it, but unless you are daily crucifying sin and repenting and following after the promises of God, you are not walking with Jesus Christ. Because you see, repentance is not just about doing, it's also about thinking. It is about not just avoiding doing what is forbidden and doing what we ought to do, it is about repenting our minds, turning from trusting in others and trusting instead in the Lord. Turning from thinking we are sufficient in ourselves to finding our sufficiency in Jesus turning from finding hope in what we can do to finding hope in the Lord God himself. This is why repentance is so critical. Well, the Lord is confrontational. The Lord is active in our lives and the lives of the Israelites. But the other important thing for us to remember in a text like this is that the Lord is faithful. He is faithful in what he does, and he is faithful in who he is. 
Now, at first, that faithfulness is very frightening, isn't it? Because if God is faithful, if God must do what He says He will do, when He has said that He cannot look upon sin, that He cannot wink at sin, that He cannot countenance our rebellion, that He is of purer eyes than to look upon transgression, that He will destroy those who mock Him, that we must be frightened, mustn't we? Stop for just a moment now and think, and think hard about how many ways you have sinned in the last 24 hours. How many untruths you've told or truths you've shaded. How many things you have failed to be generous in. How many times you have said or thought violent, rude things about others? How many visions have crossed your mind in newspapers or magazines or screens? How many times you have tried to skirt honoring your superiors? If you're like me, you don't even want to be here now. That's how great our sin is. And when we think about that God is perfect in His promises, we can look up and say, we have no hope. Look, famine, pestilence, death, war. We deserve this too. And then our minds can begin to fancy all of the ways in which this will splash across our newspapers and our headlines. What hope do we have? We have to remember that the Lord is faithful. He's faithful in what He does. And that is more than just punishing the guilty. Amos reminds us of this. He tells us that the Lord is the one, in verse 13, who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is His thought. God is our Creator. He has the right to create he has the right to renew. He has the right to forgive. He is sovereign and in control. And all of that power, that massive power, is all under His control. This world is not spinning out of control. God is in charge. He has created it and He also sustains it. He is the one who makes the morning darkness and who treads on the heights of the earth. Now, this phrase, makes the morning darkness, is very interesting. It's ambiguous. It could be read either makes the morning darkness or makes the darkness morning. It's really only three nouns. Maker of morning and darkness. And so God is not only the one who punishes, He is the one who redeems, who sustains us. He is the one that can come into the darkness of your soul, the night of your grief, and bring you the joy that comes in the morning. He can do it. Because just as your worth is not dependent upon you, your redemption is not dependent upon you. It is God who is at work. He is our Creator. He is our Sustainer. And He reminds us that He is also our Redeemer. Look here 
at the end of verse 13. Who does all of this? It's the Lord, isn't it? The God of hosts is His name. Now, perhaps your Bible is like mine, and the Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is the covenant name of God. Yahweh. The I Am. The one who spoke to Moses. The one who does all of this is the one who redeemed Israel from Egypt. God wants us to see this. All that He has put before Israel, all that He has put before us is a drive to repentance and redemption. He is the God who creates and who sustains, but who also redeems. This is a picture of His redeeming grace. Wrath is looking at mercy in this picture. Belief is looking at unbelief in this picture. And the question then comes right now, today, Sunday, August 21st, to you. Do you believe? Do you believe that redemption is found in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that forgiveness and repentance is found in the worst of circumstances? Do you believe that your only hope and life is to be with the Lord? Because you see, that's where Amos is driving us. He's calling us to repent and believe because of what God has done. That God is faithful. But God does what He does, lastly and finally, because of who He is. And we see this here as well. Verse 12 begins on a somber note. We have heard of all of the various disasters that will come upon Israel. And he says, therefore. And you know what happens when you see a therefore, right? You look back to see what the therefore is there for. Because of all of these things. Thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And when we first read this text, we're undone. I'm not ready to meet my God. Not in all my sin. Israel certainly isn't ready to meet their God. What's God doing? He's calling Israel to destruction. He's going to destroy me. No, I don't think so. Because you see, nowhere else in the Bible does God call His people to meet Him for the purpose of destruction. You see, actually, even those who are involved in destruction and battle, the victim is not the meter. It is always the destroyer who says, I am coming to meet you. So what is Amos saying here? Well, I think it's related to that last phrase, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Who is God? God is not just some God. He's not just a God. He's not even the God. He is your God. You own Him by His promise. That's what He's saying to Israel. He's your God. Come back to Him. That's what He says to us. No matter how bad your marriage is, no matter how rebellious your children are, no matter how frustrating your parents are, no matter how miserable your job is, God is your God. And if you come back to Him, He will provide. 
He's your God. This is the one whom we meet. You see, God is calling Israel back to himself. He says, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Repent. That's how you prepare. Believe. That is how you prepare. Are you prepared to meet your God? Not a God of judgment and wrath and disaster. But the God who has prepared a place for you. Who has many mansions in which you may dwell. Who has prepared lovingly a people for you. This is your God. O Christ Church. This is the Lord. The sovereign king of the universe. We are called to meet with him. To believe upon him. And to turn to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are indeed glorious. That you have not left us to our own devices, but Lord, that you demand from us faith. You demand from us repentance. And yet, Lord, you provide it in the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, please point us to Jesus. Please help us to weary of ourselves that we might rest in you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.